This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to... We're watching here! We're watching here! This is Opinionated Movie Talk with Chris and Perry. My name is Chris Williams. With me, he is the inverted bullet to my magic rock, Perry Seibert. <laughs> oh, I, 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 oh, oh, that movie inverts in so many ways, doesn't it? <laughs> it but we'll it, get to that later. Yes, um, so we are back uh, for our first episode of 2021, and we're going to be talking some movies from 2020 in this episode and the next, kind of doing a catch-up. It, it might be even something we're still talking about into February, because I, I don't know about you, Perry, I spent a lot of my uh, Christmas break watching movies. Oh, I always do. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's some of the best parts of Christmas. Yeah. But yes, a lot of new stuff, which was good. I, it, this We've talked about it before. The release schedule, with there being no traditional Oscar calendar, is so messed up and nobody knows understands when is the best time to put anything out so and there's not there's not competition for theater space so it feels like more stuff can come out and at the same time a lot of the big guns are waiting because they want to get the traditional awards uh awards time boost and we don't know if that's going to happen so yeah it's a mess but it works out well for us sometimes well, what's really nice is I'm still getting screeners. <laughs> like, I still am getting screeners from Netflix and Amazon showing up, which, oddly enough, they seem to be the ones who have sent me physical screeners this year. Yes. Uh, which is really odd, but whatever. Um, usually when we're doing the voting for critic stuff, it's right in the middle of Christmas that I'm trying to catch up on anything, which I, I kind of hate because I'd like to watch some Christmas movies. I'd like to catch up on some of the new stuff. But having, like, a whole pile of stuff from 2020 to get through in January and February when it's cold <laughs> and we can't go anywhere, I am so excited. I've still got, like, a long stack. Um, so we are today going to be talking about three new releases that came out uh, at the end of 2020. One of them, uh, Tenet, was a fall release, but it hit home release right before Christmas. So it's going to be News of the World, um, Wonder Woman 1984, and Tenet. But before we do that, Perry, what have you been watching? Uh, Chris, I think we talked about on the last time we talked that I had become a, an HBO Max household. Mm-hmm. And so yep. uh, that led to uh, – and since we're going to talk about movies, I, I feel comfortable talking about TV. That led me to finally get to watch a show that I have meant to watch for 25 years, 30 I'm trying to do the math in my head real quick. Somewhere between there, because I've always heard that it's amazing, and I love everybody involved with it, but I had never seen a moment of it. Okay. And that is the Larry Sanders show. Oh, yes. And that is a damn masterpiece. <laughs> I am I am about halfway through season two, and this is this is an uh, just an incredibly uh under uh, not underrated because the people who know it know it but this should be a much more widely known thing this is this is the jumping off point for the office mm-hmm. uh in so many ways not just the fact that uh uh kent Zbornak, who was a longtime director of the office is uh one of like he's like the assistant director here uh and uh most importantly for me I did not know that one of the big producers and writers on the show was Paul Sims, who, after uh, leaving this show about halfway through its run, created and uh, ran News Radio at NBC, which is one of my favorite sitcoms of the 90s and one of my favorite network sitcoms. Uh, It's just perfect. I have never seen a better examination of the absolute uh frailty of the psyche of show business people that doesn't make that mean like when people behave badly on this show towards each other it's never out of any real vindictiveness it's all very much an expression of their own inner loathing and that's a really really difficult thing to pull off and to make everybody still funny (laughs) like i laugh out loud at this show 
multiple times every episode. Um, a boy, I am so happy to have finally uh, to be in this world. I, I can't recommend the Larry Sanders show enough if you've never gotten around to it, and I should have seen it by now. Um, I remember when I got HBO Go or whatever it was before it got maxed out or whatever. Um, Larry Sanders show was one of those things they did not have on it yet. It was added. Oh. It was added a few years ago, um, and so I've slowly gotten around to a few. Like it's been one of those shows I'll just kind of get back and forth to. Um, so I'm only a few episodes still in the first season, uh, but the same way. I mean, it is. It's very funny. Um, it is the touchstone to, like, that's where Judd Apatow got his start. Um, yep. John Stewart played a big role late in it, right before he came to The Daily Show. Um, you mentioned The Office. Ken Quapi uh, directed yes. a lot of ep- episodes of The Office, and he was director here for a lot. So that's one I need to keep going back to. Um, it's one of those things where they added it late, so I just kind of saw it, and now it's if I remember it's there, I'll watch it. But I need to remember it's there a little bit more. Um, it, it, that's I, I don't think old TV shows get the due that old movies get. Like people will go back and watch old movies all the time. TV has for so long just been what's on now, and now we're getting the capability to go back and watch these old TV shows, and it's it's often very fun. And even with this, you know, a couple agreed totally, and coupled on that is the fact that it's HBO. Mm-hmm. It's even harder to just see. I mean, it's not like it's. You need to pay HBO to see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's a good choice. I need, and it's a reminder that I need to go back and and finish it. Um, and yeah, oh, uh, I'm blanking on the name. What is place Hank? Oh, Jeffrey Tambor. Yes, it's on the tip of my tongue, and I should know that he went to the same college I did. Um, hey but uh, that is the first of three great TV shows he got to be in. Um, so that's, that's kind of the touchstone for him as well. It's, uh, he's, he's been a fantastic character actor on TV forever and ever and ever. Uh, Well, that's, that's a good choice. And again, a reminder that I need to go back and finish that. Um, so I got around on the holiday weekend to watching the Godfather and the Godfather part two. I don't know. (gasps) I don't know if you've (gasps) heard of these movies, Perry. Um, they're, they're pretty good. Were these rewatches? Um, I did not think they were going to be. Um, I knew I had seen The Godfather before. Okay. But it had been about, it had been 25 years. It it was college. Um, And what happened was back in November or October, whenever they did Prime Day, I got a deal on the trilogy for like 20 bucks on Blu-ray. So I'm like, well, I'm not going to pass that by. I'll get that. I should have these. Um, And I, I knew I had seen The Godfather. I had assumed I had seen The Godfather Part 2. Um because I knew some of the twists in it. Uh, but as soon as I turned it on, I was like, I haven't seen this movie before. Um, <laughs> somehow I had absorbed it through like cultural osmosis or something. Yeah. Um, but I had never sat down and watched it. And wow, this was a, uh, this was a great few days of movie watching um, with the Godfather. It had been so long since I had seen it. I think, Probably right after I saw it, I also saw Goodfellas and just kind of gravitated more toward rewatching Goodfellas over the years and not um, not The Godfather. And I had forgotten how good it is. But what's what's <laughs> yeah. funny is while I couldn't have remembered half the scenes, like I knew most of the major stuff, remembered that. I, I could. It, it was like watching it for the first time, except every character as soon as they were on the screen it like clicked. Oh, I know who that is. That's Sonny. I like, that is how good that movie is at crafting that world. It, it, it just sticks with you. Even if you, you don't realize it. Um, so, so that was a great three hour binge sit and watch that first one. A few days later, I watched Godfather part two and I was a little worried. There's always this, uh, debate going on about which one's better. And <laughs> Hour into Godfather Part Two, I was kind of like, "Why is there a question? The the first one's definitely better." And then it just builds and builds, and <laughs> it gets to that ending to where I'm like, "Oh, you know, I don't, I don't know which one I prefer. I like them both. They feel of a piece. It's it's weird that you have a sequel that feels as much a piece of the first movie and as essential." <laughs> Um, so, so that was, I mean, I, I'm going to kind of pull back cause I would love to do a whole episode on these one day. I, um, I was going to say, I could, we could throw out the scheduled show and just do this for an hour. It would be no, my pleasure. 
Well, I would I would love to once I see the third because I have not seen the third. I knew that, um, and I'm debating whether I watch the theatrical theatrical cut of that or the uh, the coda that was just put out. Um, <laughs> but I would love well, I down would, the road to talk all three. I will I will say I will save a lot of the things I was going to say then since we are putting this on the calendar, uh, and I will tell you that I got the coda uh, from my daughter on Blu-ray. For oh, Christmas, nice. and I have not watched yet. And please understand, because you might not know this, not being embroiled in this at the time, the original theatrical cut of Godfather 3 no longer exists. Coppola recut it before it went to video the first time. Oh, really? Because it was rushed into theaters to make the Oscar race for that year. He did not finish editing it to his happiness at the time. And I will tell you that seeing it in the theater, I've always... Real quickly, I will just say I think that Godfather 1 is better than Godfather 2, and I think Godfather 3 is better than its reputation. Okay. <laughs> I'll put it that simply. The whatever – I don't know whether it was when I saw it a second time on video or whether it was those edits, but I like the film. I like 3 a great deal. I think it's very good. I think it is I think it is underrated. Uh, uh and then on top of that, so that makes me very excited to see the coda, <laughs> to see the deep recut, and to see how he plays with it. Because I have not watched three in a very, very long time, probably 20 years. And okay. uh, I, am, I am very interested to go back to it. And this gives me, uh, not that I need an excuse, but yes, let's plan on doing the, the Godfather saga sometime soon. I am looking forward to that. And I might end up watching the third and the coda just to make sure I... Can kind of compare them both, but we'll see how much time allows. I have two young kids, and of course, they, they of don't course. want to sit and watch that with me, or their mom does not want them to sit and watch that with me. It's remember, crazy. remember, Christopher, never go against the family. <laughs> you, you know what's crazy too is that is that is probably the most parodied performance in any movie, and yet it is it, it's, it's a so full good. character. It's it's so phenomenal. It's so good. Oh, I, I can't wait to talk that in a, in a bit. Um, that'll be Just... a fun episode. Just to watch Brando's uh, Brando's eyebrows when he <laughs> when he sees Sonny on the table, I, I'm, I, I know that sounds funny. It's the greatest eyebrow acting you will ever see in your life, and I'm not being sarcastic. I'm not. No, I know I'm what not you diminishing mean. by saying that. It's and it's so perfect with Gordon Willis's lighting. Oh God, yeah, I can talk about the Godfather forever. Yeah, yeah, that'll be a good episode. So, uh, listeners, you need to keep listening because we don't know when that will be, but we will do a Godfather episode. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to finishing out that series. Um, but now we're going to look forward from uh, 1970s to 2020, a year I'm sure we all remember very well and want to keep remembering for a long time. Um, <laughs> there were uh, there were a bunch of releases coming in online and in th- a few in theaters in the waning days of 2020, and we're going to talk about a few of them today. Um, First up is News of the World, the new one from Paul Greengrass. And this film is a Western. Uh, It finds Greengrass kind of shifting gears to uh, make something a little more classical than, uh, than the Bourne movies or United 93 or anything like that. It stars Tom Hanks as Captain Kidd, a former soldier traveling through his home state of Texas after the Civil War. And his job is that he's reading the news to people in communities who don't have access to a newspaper or can't read. Um, and when he encounters a young woman named Joanna in his travels and her family's been killed in an, his attack, in an attack, uh, he has to return her to her aunt and uncle, traversing a changing country and dangerous terrain as they do so. Um Perry, this was one I, I kind of had to stretch my brain back to when I had seen this because I saw this, I want to say at the beginning of December, and I saw it on a night when I was sick in bed. Um, oh. And the first thing I want to say is this is one of those movies I wish I would have seen on a big screen. Um, I, like I said, I've liked Paul Greengrass's stuff, uh, but I understand those who don't like the uh, whole shaky cam thing. But some of these vistas and everything are things I would have loved to see on a big screen. Um, And I kind of like the new direction for him. He's slowed down. He makes something that stands still for a few moments, which I appreciated. Um, So this is one I really would have liked to take in in a theater. Um, I I enjoyed this one. I I enjoyed this quite a bit. Uh, Didn't love it. um, 
but I really like Tom Hanks in this. I, I think he's he's reliable. Um, he really leans hard into his America's dad presence in this, which um, I don't mean that as a pejorative. I think this is a movie about a man who has to tell people their world is changing. And I, I think in, in our own world, we kind of look to Tom Hanks as the cultural ambassador of that. And he <laughs> plays into that role very well. I, I think he's used very well here. Uh, he knows how to break bad news to people. He knows the power of stories. I think Hanks is really good in developing the relationship with the young girl. Um, but he's also, I think he's very adept at emotion. There's a scene later on where he uh, he has to go to a grave of someone close to him. And he sells so much with just like a quiver of his hand that, uh, yeah, it's, it's why I like Tom Hanks so much. Um, you know, I'm usually not a Western guy. It's a genre that is not, you know, it, it's not one I just flock to every time there's a new Western, but I think it's good. It's a bit episodic, but, um, you know, the ending really hits on the cliches pretty hard, but the emotion worked for me. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of curious to see Greengrass do something like this again. Uh, what did you think? I was uh, I was warily intrigued going in. Uh, I I have real problems with Greengrass. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I think I I can't believe that his Bourne films are considered the highest, the the greatest achievement in that series. I think Doug Liman's original is so much better than both of his sequels. Um, and other than uh, bloody uh, bloody Sunday and Captain Phillips I don't I, I have severe problems with almost everything he's made uh, that said I think Captain Phillips is the best serious dramatic work of Tom Hanks's career yes and it was I was intrigued to see them paired again which is why I was like okay and I wanted to see what Greengrass like you were saying would do with a western it is you can't shoot a western a traditional Western, the way he shoots. And yeah, this doesn't feel like a Greengrass film at all, with the exception of the, the dust storm. <laughs> the sandstorm <laughs> is where he gets to go, oh, I finally get to let all this out. Oh my God, this feels so good. <laughs> and it is, a, it is the least interesting sequence in the movie. But <laughs> that said, um, I, I, I'm, I am with you for the most part. I will say that I, I think it doesn't lean into this whole idea of, bringing uh bringing the changing of the world to people i think it is very much about as you as you nailed it earlier it's about storytelling that's really what he's doing throughout this and i think hank sees this as a metaphor for what he does as a as a filmmaker and i mean that as someone who works in hollywood <laughs> Not, uh, i mean filmmaker in the grandest possible term which is what he is uh, and so for that reason i think it's really interesting i can see why hank i'm curious who had this idea first I'm curious who came to who with this. Yeah, uh, I, I would be. I mean, it feels like it originates with Hanks, and that then he went and got Greengrass to do it. I don't know that that's true at all. I could be entirely wrong. I know it's based on a novel, and it certainly feels like it. It is. It is classically structured, and feels like there's really good source material for it. Um, yeah, I I liked it. I thought it was really interesting. I. It's not terribly commercial. Uh, which is not to say that it isn't perfectly approachable. It's not. It's it's not difficult to sit through, but it's not a big splashy thing. It's a very small human story, uh, with some absolutely gorgeous photography, and none of the editing that you expect from Paul Greengrass. No, it, 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 <laughs> it's, it, it's it really takes, an interesting movie. It takes a breath, um, which his movies usually don't. And yeah, um, I, I think I'm looking at its production history. And it looks like it did start with Hanks, um, which kind of makes sense. That's kind of what he's been doing lately is finding a old historical novel he's been reading and then saying, I, I want to do this. Uh, he did that with whatever the um, sub movie was earlier this year, uh, or last year. Oh, yeah. Uh, that I, I have not. That. Yeah, I have not seen that. Um, but I know he wrote the script for that one. But that this he he's reached this point in his career where he is in total dad movie territory. And I love a good dad movie. And uh <laughs> It, it really it is that story. I, it does kind of feel like him grappling with, you know, I have this role like people look to me 
right now as some sort of figure of stability that things are going to be okay. I mean, I remember it was early after the 2016 election. He basically uh, kind of skewered that by going on Saturday Night Live and, you know, wearing his sweater and telling the nation, that, you know, it, it's going to be fine, you know, like doing a whole talk like that. But then remember at the beginning of the pandemic when he was the first celebrity to get COVID. Yes. And there was kind of this collective oh, we have to take care of Tom Hanks and, and we have to know how he's responding to this so that we can know things are going to be okay. And it's interesting to see him kind of play that persona a bit. Um, are you a Western person? I So I will tell you my, my tortured history with the Western. As a young child, I didn't like them at all. And then uh, it, was, uh, it was Lawrence Kasdan's Silverado, uh, which came out when I was about 12 or 13, that was the first one that clicked for me. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> this doesn't feel old. I mean, granted, I like gangster films. I'm more interested in the problems of settling cities than I am in settling the West. So by nature, no, I'm not naturally drawn to Westerns. That said, uh, Silverado sort of clicked for me. And I realized, you know, as I was inhaling films as a teenager, that I was going to have to learn. I was going to have to confront the Western if I was going to. Mm-hmm pretend to know anything about the history of American film. And I actually took an entire class on the history of the Western while I was at U of M. Oh, wow. Uh, and it's one of the best classes I ever took because I learned a whole lot. And I learned to really appreciate them. And there are Westerns that I adore. Um, and it doesn't – no, if you tell me it's a Western, I'm not immediately going to turn off. But, yeah, a programmer, be Western from the 50s, I normally don't care. <laughs> I need I need a little something on it. It's not a genre I care to live in all the time. But yeah, there are there are amazing westerns in the history of of the world. If you've never seen uh, if you've never seen John Ford's My Darling Clementine, oh, you are missing out. <laughs> you well, are missing one the of the truly great, beautiful movies that have ever been made, and that that is very much a western, but does all of the things that westerns try to do and actually succeeds at them in very subtle in gentle ways. I really love My Darling Clementine, among many other Westerns. Uh, so no, I am not turned off by, I am, I am, I am that odd straight white male who's turned off by, uh, neither turned off by musicals nor Westerns. <laughs> Bring them. It's fine. I can do either. I'm good with that. Just not both at the same time. Paint your wagon will scar anybody who's ever seen it. Have you ever seen these Simpsons where they did the, uh, the scene from Paint Your Wagon? And it was it, not in the, it's not from the movie, but they rented it one night. And it's like, uh, it's like, gonna paint our wagon, gonna paint it fine, gonna use oil-based paint, cause the wood is pine. (laughs) It's a terrible movie. (laughs) Paint Your Wagon is an awful movie. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm... I, I've slowly caught up on some Westerns. It's not... A, I, my dad never watched them. Like, that's what I think when I turn to genre. I feel like I kind of just turn to what I grew up with. I, I kind of instinctively flock to that. So I love a good mm-hmm. cop movie or something. My dad was oddly not a Western guy. Um, so it's one I've had to kind of, you know, force myself to go. He did like Tombstone. But um, so mm-hmm. it's... That's a good one. Yeah. And I liked this. I, I felt like it watching it now, and I think... When I look back at a lot of movies I watched in 2020, it's impossible not to get the whole current world situation out of my head. Um, oh, of course. And, and I feel like there was something where obviously this was filmed well before pandemic or anything like that. But, um, you know, it, it is interesting to watch this picture of a nation that is undergoing a change in this area of a nation that people are realizing the world is never going to be the same. And you do just want that person to say, hey you know, you're, you're, it's going to be okay. We, we can, you know, it's hard, but you'll get through. And I, I think that's why I like Tom Hanks in this. He, he never disappears into a role for me. He's always Tom Hanks, but I always like him. (laughs) It's, I mean, controversial opinion, I'm sure, but uh, you know, (laughs) write this down. Chris likes Tom Hanks. All right. Good. I find him charming. Um, but yeah, I mean, this was nothing that set my world on fire, but I did quite enjoy it. And um, yeah, I, I don't know if we have anything else to say on that or if you want to move on and take us into uh, 
Wonder Woman territory. Let's move right on to the first film from Warner Brothers to debut on HBO Max and theaters at the same time. Patty Jenkins, Wonder Woman 1984. Gal Gadot and Chris Pine are back for yet another adventure about Diana Prince and saving the world. Really, do I need to say anything else about this? Okay, I'll try. Kristen Wiig's on board, uh, as is Pedro Pascal. And, uh, yeah, and then it goes on for, what, two hours and 20 minutes? It, it, it might be. It's 2.30. 2.45, I don't know. I lost track after a while. <laughs> um, and this is uh, – so here's the thing. Here's, here's what I want to say about Wonder Woman 1984. The plot of 1984 revolves around a magical uh, thing that if you touch it and make a wish, it comes true. And then monkey's paw style, you're going to pay for it in some way you don't expect. And I believe that about four years ago, Patty Jenkins actually found one of those things, put her hand on it, and prayed for a giantly successful film career. And now her punishment is she's got to keep making Wonder Woman movies and never anything else ever. Can you believe this is the same director that made Monster? I can't. <laughs> I can't at all. And so I think it's quite autobiographical statement in that capacity, and it's interesting for that reason. I found nothing of interest in this outside of whenever they just let Gal Gadot and Chris Pine hang out. That works. They are very good together. Uh, there is the, 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 the feels moment that is supposed to happen about two-thirds of the way through this movie actually plays, and I think it plays on the strength of the two of them. I don't think the film... I, don't, I think the film is, takes way too long to get around to it. Uh, it is very reminiscent of... Uh, it is the moment at which the film lives up to something I saw you compare it to, which is the Donner Superman films, it, at which I think this is nowhere close to being as good as those movies. Uh, but the, the, that moment specifically absolutely does uh, remind you in the best possible ways of Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder, who make those movies so special. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, and before I say more mean things about Kristen Wiig, I think you should talk. <laughs> Um, okay, I have a weird experience with this movie in that I've somehow gained a reputation online as a lover of this movie because I said there were things I enjoyed about it. Um, <laughs> this this movie's definitely taking a drubbing online. Um, I think by Christmas night, like I dared glance at my Twitter and people were like, "This is the worst thing ever. This is, you know, this is the worst movie ever made. Uh, it's not even the worst DC movie ever made. Oh no, it's the second but... best DC movie ever made <laughs> well, under this have... regime of DC shit. Yeah, it's it's easily the, behind the first Wonder Woman. The rest are dreck. This oh, is, you obviously have not seen Shazam, my good friend. <laughs> uh, no, no, um, I have not, and no, I won't. <laughs> um, I, I enjoyed Shazam, but um, uh, and I'm sure it's fine. Zachary Levi is belongs on the small screen in my universe. That's <laughs> where I'll keep it. But um, yeah, Wonder Woman '84 is one of those movies that, and I wrote a whole newsletter article about this and the next movie we're going to be talking about, um, where. There is this wrestling in me with the fact that, objectively, this is a bad movie. This is a very <laughs> bad, flawed movie that I found myself enjoying in pockets. And those moments where I enjoyed it, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, they're, they're not through the whole two and a half hours, but there are moments where I, I had fun with this. And... I should preface that by saying there is a part of me wondering how much my enjoyment is affected by the fact that I'm not paying $20 to go see this. I'm watching it on a service I already paid for, and, <laughs> and we watched it. It was just my wife and I at home, 8 o'clock. What should we do tonight? Oh, let's watch Wonder Woman 84. So, you know, it wasn't like I'm going in with high, high stakes. Um, the script for this feels like a first draft that threw every idea in and never was revisited again to see does this make sense but also logically do we need all this um there, <laughs> no and no i i understand why you would bring chris pine back like you said him and uh, gal gadot have so much chemistry they're so charming together 
Um, That was really a highlight of the first Wonder Woman, which is a movie I like and I would say is one of the better superhero movies of the last 10 years. Um, But the way they bring him back, I mean, you've got a movie with magical wishing rocks in this. And they think, no, we have to explain how he comes back and make it something kind of, I don't know, not believable, but, you know, that you can explain and rationalize. So they have him, like, possess someone else's body, which opens up this whole can of worms, if you think about it, for five seconds. Um, That is just not necessary. It's a magic rock. He could just vaporize in. And uh, that's just the state of this movie, which is... There are things that they set up that you're like, oh, this is the easy way to solve this problem. Uh, there's a whole subplot <laughs> involving Holy. Pedro Pedro Pascal and his son that could <laughs> oh, have God. could have really been used to kind of give some change to his character a lot earlier that they never they never take the bait. They never do anything with except have the kid run around and say, I miss you, dad. And you have a monkey's paw. You have the kid having to make a wish. There are things you could do to make Pedro Pascal's character really uh, regret this. Uh, it, it's it's a really bad script. I think there are moments where it's fun. Um, and when I had the Donner comparison, it was really from the moments like that mall heist at the beginning or the mall fight at the beginning which has this light touch that reminds me of something from like Superman 2, admittedly maybe Superman 3, but but where it's it's light, it's not gritty, it's not violent, it's just kind of light and winking. And I want more of that in my superhero movies. I could maybe forgive all that if it actually felt like 1984 since we're making a big deal about it, this does not feel like the eighties at all. Oh no. They don't, they won't spend the money or didn't have the creative juice to score this thing with, with eighties hits, which you should have done. That's an obvious thing to do. Why wouldn't you do that? Why would you not hire Randall poster to pick the best obscure eighties tracks and score it with that? (laughs) That would be so much better than whatever is playing on in the background. Uh, I will also say this about Gal Gadot. Um, I'm not going to say she's at this level of it, but what I will say is I know Hugh Jackman is a spectacular actor because when I watch him play Wolverine, he makes me forget about that stupid friggin' haircut. (laughs) And I don't know how a human can do that because that's a terrible thing to put on an actor. (laughs) And yet I forget about it. He just embodies it. And I will say this Gal Gadot makes the Wonder Woman uniform look like, yeah, okay. I'm not, yeah. I'm not saying this in some sleazy, you know, I like leering at her way. She's beautiful. She's exotic. She's gorgeous. But it's, you wear that. I believe you. <laughs> yeah, that's Wonder I Woman. I buy that. And it's why the giant gold costume at the end is such a bummer. I'm like, oh, great. Now I'm looking at a CGI thing. Well. I, I You know, I don't, it's, oh, God, I hate this movie. <laughs> she needs the CGI <laughs> thing. this to, movie, Chris. <laughs> she needs the CGI thing to fight the other CGI thing. And um, let's talk about Kristen Wiig for a second. Uh, Jellicle Kristen. So, so here's the thing. I have this pet theory, and I can't remember if I've talked about it on the show before. So there are basically three giant feeders into SNL, right? Mm-hmm. There's traditionally Second City and the Groundlings, and in the last 15 years, UCB has also been a feeder school for them. Sure. I have this pet theory, and it's not universal. I'm not seeing it across the board. I will bring up the the, exa- the, the examples that, that break the rule if you want me to. But I firmly believe that the groundlings basically teach you to embody with 100% authority a comic construct and never let it go. And it's not about building actual characters, and it's not about building actual human interactions. And that's true of Will Ferrell, <laughs> and, and it is true of Kristen Wiig. I think she's an incredibly limited actress. I don't think she's bad, but I think she has two gears. And I think that uh, I cannot stand listening to her do that thumpering faux SNL character at the beginning of this. It grates the entire scenes that she does it. And then uh, she also has the good sense, I think, to know she's not a powerhouse of an actress, and so she underplays dramatic moments, which sounds like an insult, and I'm saying I think it's the right choice for her. 
because uh, she's fine in those sequences too, but that's all she can do. And uh, and it shows here. I, I, I've always thought that Bridesmaids would have been such a better movie if she and Maya Rudolph had flipped parts. Because oh, Maya Rudolph I mean... is the... Maya Rudolph is the is is the exception that proves the rule of the groundlings. She can actually act. She can also be broad and silly, but she can also act. And uh, I would have loved to have seen her in Bridesmaids in, in, instead of Kristen Wiig. Um, oh, I mean, I would rather Maya Rudolph take the role that half of uh, comedic actors oh, yes. just play, just All because I want Maya Rudolph take, in yes. everything. Uh, yes, agreed. I don't disagree with you about Kristen Wiig, except. I laugh. I I think she's funny. Like, and that is totally a subjective thing. The same reason I think Will Ferrell makes me laugh. But it is the same thing. They have a character they play, and that's what they trot out. Like, and it's you know, with her, it's the awkward person who kind of mumbles at the end, and yep, uh, you know, kind of looks away or says something kind of kind of inappropriate, not really, and uh, you know, kind of things like that. And it's there. I like that. Um, like it, it just, it's, it's a, it's something that makes me laugh. So I didn't mind her in that. Um, I did kind of mind that she was basically, um, dime store Michelle Pfeiffer from Batman Returns. Um, <laughs> like it, it is oh, that fair. role over and I mean, I don't, and again, that comes and I don't back. blame her for that, but yes, that is the part she's settled with. Yes. It's absolutely that. And I like, I like Kristen Wiig in this for about two hours. Uh, maybe maybe a little less than that. Um, I think it was your daughter brought it up on Facebook on my on my Facebook page that it was. they make, yes, they they make the say. odd choice to show her female empowerment by have her tracking down a and I, what does she do? She she she, she grievously and un- unnecessarily injures. Yeah, a dude but... who who might have was going to assault her earlier in the movie had Diana Prince not saved her at the last. That's moment. okay. That's the issue I had. That's right. That's what she brought up. Because in my head, I'm trying to describe this. And I'm like, but wait, wouldn't it be good that she beats up a sexual assaulter? That's right. Wonder Woman sees that as a bad thing. Uh, right. Yeah. That's that's the weird politics this movie is in. Um, and then it just basically it turns her into. I mean, it's like a stock footage from or deleted scene from Cats. The last half hour of this movie, it, it is it is uncomfortably like that, and I haven't bothered to watch Cats. And yeah, sure I haven't either. True. I haven't either. But that's exactly what it what it looks like to me. Um, it, not to mention, at this point, the movie's logic has just totally oh. collapsed on itself. And there, I like the I, like, fact that we go from physically touching to just watching something on a screen. That's not <laughs> that fair. Counts as touching. That's not fair. It was a magic satellite fairy. But... That's so awful. No, That's it... really honestly. I will forgive the entire body switch thing with Chris Pine's character. Honestly, that's the kind of thing I can let go in the first thirty minutes of a movie. <laughs> Fine, we're going to do this. That was just an inexcusable, lazy, awful way to 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 do what you want to do without having to actually build the blocks to do it. It's just awful. It's just awful. <laughs> yeah, I. I can't defend this movie, uh, except I will defend Pedro Pascal, who is going for it. Uh-huh. I, I, I mean, <laughs> the way that character is written, I don't know that he should have gone for it, but he is going <laughs> for it. And I quite enjoyed watching. I got a kick every time he was on screen because I'm like, I haven't seen a villain act like this in like 40 years in a, in a comic book movie. And I'm kind of digging it. Um, yeah, I liked watching that. Uh, I, I liked him. I thought he was fun. I think there are times where the movie kind of finds its feet uh, and, and is a little bit fun, a little bit winky. I think it's sincerity at the end. Like you said, with that scene between Chris Pine and Gal Gadot, really it's hits. Excellent. It That's works. That's a great sequence. Even though the the whole talk to people through the satellite oh. is what it ever it is, I, I think Godot sells the sincerity in what the speech she makes at the end. And I don't know how any of that makes sense. Like my wife and I were trying to figure out the logic for this movie as we're watching, uh, which again adds to the fun. Um, but, but I, I bought her sincerity in that final scene. And I like the fact that it was an ending 
that wasn't your typical, you know, CGI brawl after you got past the CGI brawl. Um, you know, it was, there's a way to redeem the character, the, the villain. There's a way to wrap everything up without a giant fight. I appreciate the attempt. Um, and I appreciate that, you know, however many years ago, five, six years ago, I sat in a theater and watched Zack Snyder totally just shit on all these characters. Yeah. And now someone's making something that isn't remotely like whatever he was thinking up. Um, it, it is not perfect. It is probably not even good. But, you know, it's different from where we started. And I appreciate that there's some sort of course correction. Um, I'll also say, you know, I think Marvel movies are, are by and large better than Wonder Woman 1984, but they wouldn't be allowed to, like, Patty Jenkins had full control over this. This was the movie she wanted to make, by all accounts. Um, and maybe there should have been some reining in on that, but you know and what? her monkey's paw wish came true. Great. But that, that's kind of the thing that even when I don't like it, I, I kind of admire about DC is at least they're they're trying something different. I, I enjoy the Marvel movies. I love them. We're actually going to start going through them as a family again this year. But they're very much, they're, they're a brand. They're McDonald's. You know when you watch one exactly what you're going to get and how it's going to taste. DC, I don't know what the hell they're doing every time out because sometimes... It's Shazam, which I can watch with my kids. Sometimes it's Birds of Prey, which has Ewan McGregor cutting people's faces off. Sometimes it has Joaquin Phoenix shooting Robert De Niro in the head. I don't know what this series is, and some of them I really hate. But I like that I don't know what it's going to be every time I turn up. That's, that's kind of fun to me. And it's it's telling to me that I don't even think of – I don't even think of the Joker – in or Joker in, in in this, I wasn't even lumping him when I said it's the second best DC film. I think I think Joker's far above, but we've had this conversation. <laughs> I literally mean straight up, you're straight up comic book adaptations that okay. DC's kicking out there. Let's be. I, I should, well, I should even that. that clear. I mean, there's. I still haven't gotten around to Aquaman, but I, I have many people telling me it's a lot of fun. Um, but it's Aquaman, so I have not gotten around to that. I will I will go back and kick the uh, <laughs> the dead horse that I love to kick every time we have this conversation. I'm willing to bet that Aquaman could absolutely be better than Ant-Man and Wasp. I haven't seen either of them, but I'm willing to bet Ant-Man and Wasp is an utter waste of 2 hours of my life. <laughs> I I enjoy I will I enjoy Ant-Man and the Wasp, but I enjoy that particular brand of McDonald's. Um, <laughs> you know, that... have you thought about Ant-Man and Wasp since you've seen it? I have thought about it when I've seen it on Disney Plus. Uh, okay. No, right. no, that's the thing. I, I was having this thought earlier this week. I'm like, you know, what? I love. The, I'm, I'm really starting to rethink of how I'm approaching reviews this year and what I choose to review. I love the Marvel movies. I have fun with those. I never want to write another review for a Marvel <laughs> movie because you can't. Like, unless you wait until after that comes out, and then maybe there's something you can dig into. Some of them. But no, it is it is fast food. It is a burger that they slap in my hand in the drive-through. Um, you know, DC movie. Yeah, I'll review some of that. I, it was cathartic to review Joker. I think there's some <laughs> really interesting things going on in Birds of Prey, which is a. It, it's hard to believe someone said, "Hey, this is one of our most popular characters. We're going to let someone make <laughs> the movie that they made with this because it is." It, it's a I, I like Birds of Prey quite a bit. Um, it is a weird movie though, and not something you would bank on if you wanted to like get that two hundred million dollar opening weekend. No, um, certainly not. And, and I dig that. Like I, I like that it's it's different. Wonder Woman eighty four. I know they were hoping it being the big uh, a big theatrical hit originally. I think maybe an HBO Max debut is the perfect place for it. Um, because, again, I enjoyed it. I, I, I guarantee if anyone goes to my newsletter and reads that, and I'll put the link in the show notes, I gave it much more of a defense than it probably deserved. Um, you know, it, it's like Roger Ebert used to quote, a man walks into a movie theater, the movie critic has to brave it, be brave enough to admit he is that man, even when he's watching it on his couch. Um, <laughs> Because, yeah, there, there was something goofy and silly about it that I, you know, 
I enjoyed. It wasn't a slog for me. I, I had a good time with it, even as my wife and I were talking back and forth about how ridiculous and bonkers it was. Yeah, it's not miserable. It, it's not a. It's not the worst thing ever by any means. It's just not good. No, it, it's just not good. And it's so disappointing because I really do like the monkey's paw thing. Was great. Uh, that's perfect. Like that idea, that core idea is fantastic. And they just fumble it. They just don't cleanly tell that story. And if they had, it would have been so much better. Well, it's everything is dress is just overcomplicated. The monkey's paw thing is a great idea until you have the guy who, you know, oh, I know about this. So I know what I'm gonna do. I want to be the Rock, which. At what point, like, like my eyebrows just shot up, and I'm like, "What? Like that's <laughs> that's the villain's plan? Is he's going to be the Rock? And that uh-huh. that's a choice. And I kind of like the silliness of that because that is, you know, rooted in some comic book weirdness. But at the same yeah. point, I'm like, you literally could have just had him wish for more wishes, and it would be <laughs> just as believable and require less explanation. But I thought they said you only get one. I don't know, because then Kristen Wiig gets to wish for Wonder Woman's power and wish to become a cheetah. Oh, I guess that's true, doesn't she? Yeah, well... Well, there's there's no logic to it. The movie doesn't make any sense. Why are we deconstructing this? I mean, there's (laughs) there's literally a scene where one man wishes his wife would... His wife would drop dead. She wishes that the police would round up all the Irish. It happens immediately, and Wonder Woman loses her powers over like two or three days. And let's be clear. The only reason this is set in 1984 is so we can have an old-school Cold War nuclear standoff at the end. There is no other reason, and you would not know it other than that. And that's all – and that's nothing but a giant nod to the end of Watchmen, the actual book, Watchmen. Yes. And that's just, again – I don't know why you're – this is oh. – <laughs> All right. One final question I had about this. If one person made it, it still feels like it was made by committee. <laughs> what, one final question I had about this. The president in this movie. Oh, God. Was that just the world's worst Ronald Reagan impersonator or was it not supposed to be Ronald Reagan? Because I honestly can't tell. Well, part of the problem is there's no other nod to 1984, so it does feel incredibly out of place. So, no, it hasn't felt like you've been in 1984, so why should it be Reagan? Again, it's... that is unfair. They mention parachute pants and fanny packs. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. <laughs> oh, they Perry, mention that is... them, but yes, that's all they do. I, I believe Chris Pine wears them at one point. Uh, you know, Chris Pine continues to impress. I hope he can get away from this shit. That's all I'm I, saying. He is – he somehow – he's one of those guys who got trapped – into a leading man status, a movie star status, that he is a character actor. Like, he, he can go really weird, and I love watching him when he's just kind of let go weird. He, he remi- He's a lot like James Marsden to me, who is a guy who <laughs> is really funny, and you can let him go weird, and then when you put him in a straight role, it just doesn't quite work for me. I, I've said it before. I, a film that I defend that many others hate is the adaptation of Into the Woods from a few years ago. I think it's a really good movie, actually. And he is superb in it in a variety of ways. It's not a one-note comedic performance. He's really good in that movie. I will have to check that out. So that is Wonder Woman 1984, which I think you can still see on HBO Max until January 24th. Something um, like that. Yeah, it's they're on there for a month, and then by then something else will be coming out, and it might be better than Wonder Woman 1984, which I'm sure Warner Brothers loves me saying, um, <laughs> since they spent so much money to do that. Um, but we're going to pivot. That was actually the first movie under Warner Brothers, um, hey, movie theaters aren't coming back plan. But now we're going to talk about a movie that was Warner Brothers. Hey, no, movie theaters will be fine. Plan. No, it was their last attempt. The last at, hope. Hey, we're, 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 movie theaters are going to be fine. Yes. The the <laughs> last hope for movie theaters, and we we did a whole episode about Christopher Nolan um, back a few months ago. Um, but I finally got around to seeing Tenet. Perry, I know you got around to seeing Tenet. This is his movie from this fall, uh, originally slated for this summer. And this is Christopher Nolan back in kind of Inception territory, doing an original 
sci-fi movie about um, about an agent, uh, a protagonist, if you will, who... Oh, no, no, not a protagonist. Oh, he is the protagonist, The yes. protagonist. The protagonist, um, played by John David Washington, who has his whole idea of reality and physics turned upside down, backwards and forwards, when he learns of a secret technology that could doom the world. Um, I will not say anything more about the plot, because honestly... I understood about fifteen percent of it, but um, yeah, this is this is Christopher Nolan doing what Christopher Nolan does. Uh, this is a two and a half hours of timey wimey stuff, um, time moving <laughs> backwards and forwards. And I think I've heard other people say this. I, I'm inclined to agree. This is the most Chris Nolan movie ever made. This is the most Chris Nolan movie of Chris Nolan movies, uh, and I. <laughs> I, I mean that in good and bad ways. This is a movie that if Wonder Woman 1984 took logic, threw it out the window, ran it over with a car, lit it on fire, Tenet is all logic, all internal logic that I don't understand, but I, I watching this, I had no doubt that Chris Nolan understood what everything meant and what was happening. It is thought out like a finely tuned machine <laughs> the action pieces are admittedly fantastic i don't i don't know if there are people making action films like chris nolan they are fun to watch i wanted to see this in imax this this movie has the precision of a machine and the story development of a story problem um <laughs> This it, this is where I really have to put on my critics uh, mea culpa hat again. Uh, if Wonder Woman 1984 was a bad movie that I enjoyed, Tenet is a movie that has a lot of things it does really right. But Perry, this movie left me so cold. Uh, I was frustrated. I was bored at certain points. I know there are people who love going back and watching this already ten more times. God bless him. I don't think I could sit through it again. <laughs> so 15 minutes in, you get the scene where they explain what's going on in the movie, right? John David Washington gets told by this scientist that Sony in the future has figured out how to create inversion where like you reverse the entropy of objects and then they can come back in time. But they're only coming back in time to, uh, to us in this timeline, because in that timeline, they're going forward. And then at the end of this, right, and I like these scenes in, in any movie, especially in Nolan movies, because he means it. And then at the end, she delivers this speech. And, like, it just makes enough sense that I'm like, okay, okay, I'll play along. The scientist literally says, don't try to understand it, just feel it. And we know that feeling is the one thing Christopher Nolan cannot do. He can think. He cannot feel. That was what Inception was about. <laughs> that's, that's why for me Inception is the most Nolan-y film of all of Nolan's films. Um, and I thought, oh, this is a disaster. He's not even willing to commit to his own premise at this point. And then for the next hour, I had such a good time watching this movie, Chris. It's the best Bond film that isn't a Bond film for that next 45 minutes hour after that. John David Washington is low-key charismatic. Robert Pattinson owns the screen when he's on it. They are really good together. There's really funny dialogue they are given. Michael Caine shows up for his obligatory cameo. Uh, and you understand it's, it's giant plot exposition dump in order to get to the next action sequence. And it's, got, it's beautifully paced in that way, leading up to a fantastic break into an airport terminal that I don't want to see any more about. And then... <laughs> And then the halfway point comes and you realize people can go back in time. And then you're like, well, <laughs> we've established well that once you once you put time travel in a movie, all stakes are over. Nothing yes. matters anymore. There's no there's no need to emotionally invest in anything if you can time travel. And so I checked out again and yet it's stuck with it. I was willing to play along because it continued to be truly a pleasure to watch. I liked looking at it. I enjoyed it. Um and um, with it, and then in the last 30 minutes, it, it truly just even stops playing by its own rules. <laughs> and I, I went, oh, you failed, Chris. You were so close. <laughs> you were so close. But you just dropped the ball at the end. And, and I will not say that, you know, 
as much as no one would like to tell you that he's telling an emotional story at the at the level of which he is capable of doing so, I think he does. I'm fine with the emotional stakes that we are asked to invest in this in uh, in one of these characters, particularly Elizabeth Debicki's character. Uh, I have a giant soft spot for Kenneth Branagh. I always have. I always will. I love seeing Kenneth Branagh on screen. Uh, I enjoyed that he was the bad guy this time around. Uh, and uh, but yeah, it, he, he so violates the rules that he set up in the last thirty minutes of this thing, and I don't really care. Because I wasn't so invested that I had my heart broken, Chris. <laughs> this film managed my expectations while I was watching it. <laughs> it's a really impressive trick to pull off. And so I was left with, yeah, back to where I was every time Nolan does something like this. It's how I felt after uh, – uh, uh, I'm totally blanking on the Magician movie. Uh, prestige. Prestige. Uh, it, and how I felt after Inception. I'm like, I'm glad somebody wanted to make that. I don't know that I ever want to see it again or need to see it again. It's not, you know, the greatest thing ever. It doesn't change cinema. But I'm glad somebody's trying stuff like this. <laughs> I, I kind of admire it. I don't like it all that much, but I'm really glad he made it. And I do think that I, I – Memento was so great because for all of its time playing, it fits squarely into the tradition of L.A. crime fiction of the L.A. private eye. Mm -hmm. And I think when Nolan is truly wedded to genre, he's really good. When he's really got to, when he has to answer to those tropes, he's very good, which is why I think Inception, for the most part, works as a sci-fi film and as, a, as, as a, an emotional investment in someone's inability to feel. <laughs> and it's why The Dark Knight works. It, it, it is the most closely wedded to a traditional sort of comic book story. And it's why I think that this works because so much of it is a Bond film. It's not the time travel that needs to work. It works as a straight up action story. And so I'm, I was so much better with this than I expected to be. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I bounced around the same way you did. I would, I would usually, you know, kind of get my interest peaked whenever he would go into one of the action sequences, because there are things in this movie that, like you said, they are cool, they look fun, they are like a Bond movie. Um, and so you've got Robert Pattinson and John David Washington climbing up the walls of a... bungee jumping up a, the walls of a building, which is cool to watch. I wish I would have seen that on an IMAX screen. Um, there is a backwards fist fight that is pretty cool. <laughs> um, a backwards car chase that I think is even cooler. The plane crash, uh, that was not done CGI, and you could That's tell. That's so good. And and you know what? In the same way, I don't know what happened in this. I like I still could watch it probably three or four more times and not understand what happens in that final 30 minutes, especially with Robert Pattinson's character. Um, but no other studio is giving a director money to make something that big that isn't tied to something that already exists. And I hope they keep giving him money to do that thing. Um, I don't know if it'll be Warner brothers anymore, but man, I just, th there was no anchor for me in this, which yeah, if, I, James Bond's a good, uh, that, that's a good comparison because Nolan's always wanted to make a bond film. Um, but at least James Bond, there are enough tropes where I'm like, oh, it's James Bond. He does this. He, you know, he pursues the women. He likes his martinis this way. You know, he has that wry sense of humor. I like John David Washington a lot. I think he's really good with what he's given here. But there was nothing for me to be tied to. And not even kind of the James Bond quirks that made me think, oh, yeah, this is the hero I want to see five more movies about. He was fine. He, I, I kind of thought it was odd when the whole laws of physics are explained to him as totally being reversed. He's just like, oh, cool. Give me a gun. Let me try it out. Yes. Like, 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 exactly. But maybe that is also Nolan. It does feel like Nolan is almost throwing his hands up and saying, you guys got me. I don't really want to make something about characters. I'm not even going to name him. He is the protagonist. Nor am I going to call him the hero. Yeah, he's the protagonist 
I'm like, that's just the most cold and clinical thing to tag your lead character with. And yeah. I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you, Chris, because I, I, I have no interest in going back over this and I need to talk to somebody who likes this film a whole lot more than both of us to get the answer to this. But the thing that I, I just throw the, the thing where I was like, you don't know what you're – you violated your own rules, and if you haven't, then you haven't explained them clearly enough. And this is a spoiler. Shut your ears down if you want for the next couple of minutes, people. Why doesn't one of the two Elizabeth DeBeckys in the last sequence have an oxygen mask? Why is that not a thing? <laughs> I'm dead serious. Because we saw her before, and she didn't have an oxygen mask on is the only thing I can think of. Like they just let that go after a while. Yeah, it's like, it's like, it's like he's. It's like he. No one realized. Oh shit! I did that with Bane. I can't keep my. I can't keep all my heroes' faces covered. I guess. I guess we'll let that rule go. I don't know. I don't understand. That's what I'm saying. He violates his own rules. <laughs> At the end, I'm like, why? Why did you bother setting up all these rules if you're not going to follow through? Just make the movie you want to make. <laughs> there, there's a whole sequence at the end that involves basically two armies fighting each other and yes. for the life of me i could not figure out who was fighting each like i guess and again we're still in spoilers here are they just fighting each other like themselves like through different like different timelines or is there a whole army from the future that's just been like i could not figure it out and then when they got <laughs> to the twist about robert pattinson's character i'm like so the twist was Tenet was the friends we made along the way. Like, yes. Like that, that yes. there was an emotional impact. I think that's where he wanted it to be. And I was just so confused by it. And there hadn't really been, there, there'd been banter between Washington and Pattinson, but there was never this bond that seemed to form. And I'm like, I don't have any emotional root in that. It's no. a nice twist, but okay. I guess I care more about that than I care about, Elizabeth DeBecky's son, who she cares about a lot because she says it all the time. Uh, yes, that's Nolan's understanding of motherhood. You're a mother, so you care a lot. Well, but you that's all he's st- got. That's all he understands of human interaction. You don't even understand see her really interacting with her son except for, to pick him up a few times, like from the right. bus stop. He, she just says, "I love him. I love my son." There is one line in this movie. I, I laughed so hard. When they said it, someone is explaining like the consequences. If Kenneth Branagh's uh, plan goes to fruition, everything in the world will stop. Everything will be destroyed. And Elizabeth Debicki just says, including my son. (laughs) (laughs) And I laughed so hard because that was her one, her one identifying trait, which is a shame because I like Elizabeth Debicki. Um, I'm reminded of the great scene. That was the great line of dialogue in Pearl Harbor. And then all this happened. All this happened, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Kenneth Branagh. Uh, I, I, go, I go back and forth on Kenneth Branagh in this movie um, because I felt like any second he was going to reveal his grand plan was to kill Moose and Squirrel. Um, <laughs> because he lays it on thick, which is also what I like about Pedro Pascal. I was going to say, this is, this is the same performance, and I like yeah. Branagh's better. And <laughs> I, I think I would like Branagh's better had I not seen him give it in Jack Ryan. That's fair. That's um, fair. I, I, you know, I, I'm never going to, like, I'm never going to mind when he shows up. I like him. Um, you know, I, and... You know, it's 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 a note of color in a movie where everyone else is so cool and collected that he's this angry guy, like, and gonna destroy the world via Fitbit. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, gosh, I I still think though. I mean, the action in this is incredible. I would have loved to see this in IMAX. I would happily, when theaters reopen, if they bring this back and show it in IMAX, I would happily go. Um, I, I feel like that that would be a very good waste or good spending of my money is to see this on a giant screen and enjoy some of those action sequences. But I don't know that I have the patience to sit through it and decode it all, which is weird because, you know, Memento, which is you brought that up and that's where a lot of the ideas in Tenet seem to have gotten their start. That's that's a movie that also kind of moves backwards and forwards in time. And even starts with a bullet moving backwards in time. Um, 
but I I could watch Memento and I've and put the pieces together, just go back and rewatch well, yes. it again. I'm invested in that. Tenet just fell, and maybe again it's watching it at home on a smaller screen, like not a laptop, but it was my TV. But I, I just I don't have that immersion that a movie like that requires to make me realize there's nothing else here. No, no, no movie can survive. Uh, get the exact quote because I wrote it down. It made me laugh. Sorry. Don't try to understand it. Just feel it. Just feel it. At that point, you're check out even on a big screen. You're like, oh, you don't know what you're doing. You, you don't you don't know what you're doing. You're just playing games with me, which is all Nolan has ever done. The man does not have a deep thought in him. He, he does has... not. He th- he is interested in time and how he can control it and manipulate it. He is not interested in the actual effects of time on a person. That's Richard Linklater's job. I think I described him as a bombastic Richard Linklater. Um, but yeah, he's Nolan has clever ideas. But yeah. It, it, that's that's pretty much where it ends. He's not, he doesn't have deep ideas. He doesn't have, he's not interested in delving into anything human in it. He wants to play around with it. And, you know, it's a craftsman thing. And that's, that's fine. I enjoy watching it. I would much rather, I would much rather they give Nolan the money to do this than give Michael Bay money to do mostly anything. You know, it, <laughs> keep making the movies. Yeah. I, I mean, I am surprised that Warner Brothers was banking on this to uh, kind of be the savior of cinema, because I do think it is a movie that half the audience would look at and go, okay, I don't get that. Um, I don't know that this would have been enough even in a regular summer to be a giant size hit. I think it would have made money, but I don't think it would have been an inception size movie. I don't know. It would have been an interesting question. Uh, you know, and I don't know that we'd ask that same question if it were Leonardo DiCaprio and not John David Washington at the center of it. That'd be interesting, too. Uh, do we have anything else to say about Tenet? I think we're good. I think we're good. I think, I think... I've, I think I've said my piece. Let me look over my net. Nope, I'm good. I think I'm All right. <laughs> Perry, where can people find you? You can find me right here on this podcast. You can hear me every Friday morning on the Lucianne Lance show on WLBY in Ann Arbor. You can find me on Facebook, on Twitter at Perry Loves Film, and you can hear me often at the Cathode Ray Mission podcast. You can find me um, at chrysicisms.substack.com. That is my newsletter. comes out every Friday. That is where I'm doing the bulk of my writing right now. Um, so I encourage you to subscribe. It's free. I'm going to be focusing a lot more on film and TV writing this year. I had been doing kind of a little bit of everything, but I really want to focus more on film and TV. Uh, you can listen to my other podcast, Cross Culture Critic, which comes out occasionally. And you can find me on Twitter at Mere Christianity. Perry, we'll see you back here in a few weeks. Sounds good.